Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Level Up, the esports and gaming show with me, Nathan Bliss, esports and gaming writer at Reach PLC. In this week's episode, I spoke to my Reach PLC colleague, Steve Bromley, a principal user researcher. Previously, though, Steve worked as a senior user researcher at PlayStation working on software and hardware for Sony's PlayStation. Steve worked on hardware like the PlayStation Virtual Reality headset and games, including PlayStation VR Worlds, Until Dawn, Russia Blood, Riggs, Mechanized Combat League, That's You, No Man's Sky, and Horizon Zero Dawn. Steve told me all about the role of a games user researcher and how they make games better. We also discussed how games get made, why it's fun to work in games, some of the misconception around games development, Cyberpunk 2077, No Man's Sky, getting employed in the gaming industry, and why he wrote a book about how to be a games researcher. Enjoy! Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Um, How are you today? Yes, great. And thank you for having me, Nathan. I'm really excited to be here today. No problem at all. And it's a, it's a very special day for you, isn't it? Because we're talking to you on the day that your new book is launching, How to Be a Games User Researcher. Um, how are you feeling about it? And congratulations as well. Yeah, really excited. It's been a real community effort. So I've reached out to a lot of the people that I've worked with in the past inside the games industry and also people who are members of the games user research community. And it really feels like everyone's had a chance to contribute and bring together uh, a, a exciting book so i'm really excited to be able to share it with everyone cool and yeah like it must be such an exciting time for you and i know we were talking beforehand though it's like everything's pre-ordered now isn't it so you don't get that kind of i suppose buzz on the opening day but um you know that your work is out there and you just gotta wait i suppose uh for the for reception Exactly. It's all virtual these days. Yeah. I guess the nice thing is you get lots of tweets of people saying, I've bought it or this looks great, but you don't get the fun of being able to press a big button and then seeing your book go out <laughs> into the world, as I imagine it maybe it used to be. <laughs> a big red button always makes it better, doesn't it? If you've got a button <laughs> to press to release something. It's, <laughs> it's always exactly. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, so at the moment, uh, in your current role, you work for the same company I work for, Reach PLC, as a principal user researcher. But in a past life, you work for PlayStation or Sony Interactive Entertainment as a user researcher and a senior user researcher, which is why I wanted to talk to you so much. And thanks for agreeing to come on. Shall we start then with taking a look at your role um, as a games researcher um, and just introduce yourself as well a bit about who you are and, and what you've done in the past. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'll start with the introduction about myself and then I'll talk a bit more about what games user research is. So uh, as you know, my name is Steve Bromley. I'm a user researcher. We run playtest studies to help make sure that people are understanding and able to play our games in the way in which we expect them to be able to. So as you mentioned, I used to be based at PlayStation. 
Uh, they have an in-house user research team where we got to work on lots of very exciting software projects, games such as No Man's Sky or Horizon or the SingStar series, and also on lots of their hardware as well. So you probably know that PlayStation released a virtual reality headset a few years ago. Again, that was a really exciting research opportunity where we could run playtests to make sure people were able to use it. Uh, since then, I've been running a mentoring scheme for people who want to become game user researchers. So we link up people who are students or at the beginning of their careers with uh, people who are in industry. So working for big companies like Ubisoft or Activision or Microsoft. And we help those students understand what game user research is and how to get a job as a game user researcher. So uh, the book, which, as we mentioned, is out today helps people understand, uh, yeah, share some of the lessons essentially of how do you become a game user researcher and how do you get this job? You also asked, what does a game user researcher do? Which is a, a really good question. So I'll, I'll give a bit of background. People who make games often end up quite different to the people who play games. If you can imagine a developer working on a game or an artist working on a game, spend years and years looking at that game, playing it, they really know it inside out. They know exactly how it works and they often become very good at the game that they're playing, that they're making. Uh, that's great, but the problem is that they are then unable to tell what a real player would experience the game like and what a real player would understand and be able to do. This means that without things like playtesting, Games will end up too difficult because they're set at the difficulty for someone who's been playing it for years, not someone playing it for the first time, or too complicated. They won't uh, un explain and tutorialize how bits of the game work. That's when games user researchers step in. What we do is we work with game teams to help them understand to help understand what it is the game is meant to be meant to do and how the game is meant to work, and then we run playtests to see if players do experience the game in the way in which uh, they're intended. That can be one-to-one -one play tests where we're sat in a room with a player, we put them through the tutorial of a game and we see if they're able to use it and able to do it in the way in which we expect them to. Or much later on in development, those play tests can be multi-seat things or online things where we have tens or hundreds of players playing through a game and we're measuring the difficulty of the game to make sure that the game isn't too easy or too difficult. Obviously, that's really exciting. You get to work on games throughout development and see some really exciting research challenges. Um, and it's a great career, which is why I'm really excited to be able to share this opportunity with a wider group of people who might be interested in doing it. So can you tell me a bit more about, um, as a user researcher at PlayStation, um, some of the games you were involved in uh, when you were there? Yes, yeah, so I was based in PlayStation's European user research team. So we had the opportunity to work on both some big games that people have heard of and also work with some really small teams and have a really big impact on smaller games. Some of the more well-known games that I worked on when I was there include Horizon, Little Big Planet, uh, SingStar, the No Man's Sky, and also a lot of the launch lineup for PlayStation's uh, virtual reality headset. But some of the interesting challenges we had as well were with those smaller teams because PlayStation also funds a number of independent studios to make games. So some of the more fun projects include uh, puzzle games like Murasaki Baby, uh, the uh, first-person shooter games like Rush of Blood, or ones that use innovative technology like the Wonderbook series. And is choosing a favourite one like choosing your favourite child or have you got any, any favourites you think? 
I think the ones I enjoyed best were the ones where it's really fun to be in the room with the people who were testing. Uh, one that springs to mind is there's a party game called That's You. In That's You, you had to you had a group of four friends, and it would say, oh, "Okay, who would be the most likely person in your group to have a one night stand?" And then everyone votes privately on who they think it is, and then it gets revealed to the whole group. Uh, there were some really nice dynamics in that room because of those friendship groups. And yeah, it was great to be in those kind of experiences, the party experiences. I guess another thing I have is flashbacks to working on SingStar. Uh, the number of people I've heard seeing Bohemian Rhapsody or <laughs> Call Me Maybe, uh, yes, sometimes brings back memories. Are the, the songs just ruin for you now when you listen to those? Some of them I've heard way too often, yes. <laughs> and I mean, what in your experience do you think is the game that was, I mean, you, don't, I mean, you could name it if you wanted to, but the, maybe the game that was the most well-received that you immediately got an amazing reaction from from the people you were involved with? Mm. So I personally only worked on the end of Horizon, but it's really nice seeing how, uh, especially the critical reception after it got released, how well-received Horizon was as a game, how much people were excited about it, and people looking forward to the sequel, which I think is out this year. Um, it's really nice to work on a big title like that that people really care about. So that was lovely. There was a, a really interesting point in, in your book where you talked about the overview of the role, and you said that games user researchers help make games better. And you, you gave two reasons by... First, helping people who make design decisions such as artists, designers, understand their players better because they're coming at it from a creative point of view, I suppose, rather than a practical point of view. And the second, you say, by putting real players in front of early versions to check that players are experiencing them in the way that are intended. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because obviously I play a lot of games in, in my role and, and it's my spare time and you don't really think about the amount of effort that goes into making a game. And we've spoken to a lead games designer on the podcast before, and I learned so much about the different stages of games development and things. But in terms of user research, it just seems like one of those steps that if it wasn't in there, the games would be very different um, to what we've seen um, over the past kind of decade or two decades. Yeah, it's particularly interesting in games. So this idea of doing user research and running these kind of studies isn't just a thing for games. You do it on websites and you do it for apps. It always makes sense to check that people can understand and use the thing you're making. But with games, it has some really unique challenges. Um, because games are an art form and they are creative and the person who makes them has a creative vision, what we have to be really careful as its user researchers is that we are making sure that the designer's and the developer's vision is being experienced correctly. We don't want to change that vision. If the game is meant to be hard, that's okay. And it's wrong of us to come in and say, oh, actually, players think this is too hard and they're unable to do it, and that's annoying. Uh, that doesn't match the vision of the game and it doesn't allow the game to be an artistic uh, creation. You can imagine games like Dark Souls where it being difficult is a very important part of the experience. So because of that, there are some unique challenges for games development. So although it is very important for us to run playtests throughout development and make sure that players understand what the designers are trying to do. We also have to spend a lot of time working with those designers and the developers and the artists to understand what they are trying to do and make sure that we don't trample all over that with our playtests. 
I can imagine as a as a games user researcher doing those research groups and getting people to play the game and the relationship that you have with people that have designed the game and the created the creative people behind the game, I suppose is really important because if you don't have that relationship, it could be seen as you taking results to them because I suppose you've never had have you ever had something go perfectly where you go back to them and go, actually, you know what, you've designed this game exactly as you intended and the users that <laughs> the users accept it exactly the way you wanted i'm guessing that's never happened so the relationship yeah. needs to be there doesn't it to be able to give that feedback you're exactly right and that's exactly true that we've never gone back and said actually your game is perfect and people understand entirely how it's meant to work it's much more common that teams think they can do these kind of play tests right at the end of development and so they'll put it off and postpone and then run it just before launch and then discover there are all these problems where we haven't explained how the game works or the tutorial isn't very good and there's not enough time to fix it, which can lead to dodgy games at launch that have to be fixed later on. What's more common is we'll go through that first experience with the game team where they put it off and then they'll realise, oh, actually, we should have done this much earlier so we have more time to fix the problems. And then over time and over separate games, we move earlier and earlier in that development process. So yeah, relationships are a huge part of it, as well as being able to plan and run a, a study. When you actually do these research groups at the start and at an end, when you look at different games and you play different games in your spare time, can you see straight away at what point that particular game has done the user research study, if you see what I mean? Yeah, you see when you're playing games, often really interesting tiny bits about the game where because you i've run quite a few studies now and lots of play tests i know what fixes to issues look like you can see where a small change has been brought in to fix an issue an example that occurs to me was i was playing uh, the star wars game that came out last year i can't remember the name of it you are uh, a trainee jedi in, in it and there's one tiny bit where you wake up inside a spaceship and for no particular reason at all, there's a robot comes out of the wall and then opens a door and leaves, which has, has no plot point and seems like such a minor detail. But I reflected on it and I thought, oh, okay, I can see why this happens because this spaceship, it's not clear where the door is. And I bet in a playtest, players got into this room and then didn't know where the door was to leave. And so what they've done is they've made this little robot walk through the door to open it up in order to show this is where the door is. And you spot lots of tiny things like that where games have fixed playtest issues that you can work out what the issue was based on what's happening in the game. And that's really interesting too. It really changes how you play games. Yeah, I can imagine you don't play you don't play a game how I would play a game and <laughs> you pick up on stuff that I wouldn't pick up. But that's really interesting. So in that particular instance then, um, do you think that that, that user, re user research group was done late on and instead of changing the door and how the environment looked, they just added a robot in because that was the easier option, you think, at that point, as a guess? Uh, yeah, I obviously have no insight on how they approach development, but I suspect that's the case. I suspect it's much easier for them to just add a character walking into the room rather than having to change all the environmental assets, which are probably used throughout the game and would cause many knock-on problems. But again, these are one of the things that if a game team noticed that earlier in development, they would be able to look at all the range of ways they could fix it and pick what's the best way of fixing the issue for them. That's so interesting. I'm going to watch out for things like that now and just to, <laughs> just to see <laughs> to see if I can notice little bits. But 
Let's talk then about these user research groups then and feedback groups, I suppose, if you like. For example, you're working on a game, um, you're working for a games publisher and they said, look, we've got an early version of the game ready now and we'd like you to do some user research on it. How big would that user research group be or does it depend on the game? And then how long normally would they spend playing it before you gave back the results? Yeah, great question. So I think the answer to your first question about how big that uh, group would be is often based on exactly what the game team want to learn about the game. And that usually changes through development. So early on in development, they often have very specific questions about mechanics in the game. For example, does crafting work or do players know how to use all the combat abilities? And for those kind of things, as a researcher, what we need to do is watch people play in a one-to-one setting. And so we'll find five or six players who match the type of players who we think will buy the game. We'll put them in front of the game and we'll watch them play. And then by watching what they do understand and don't understand and asking some questions to get what's going on inside their mind, we'll be able to work out what don't they understand, why don't they understand it, and then be able to give some good recommendations to the team to say, look, people didn't learn how to use the crafting system in your game. And the reason was because they missed these points in the tutorial. And so you should look at fixing your tutorial to make sure that people understand how crafting works. Later on in development, the type of questions that game teams come to us with are often much broader. They are, is the game too difficult? Is it too easy? Uh, Is the game fun? And these are often uh, what we call quantitative studies, where we need to get a lot of people in and measure things like opinions or the amount of times they die on the level in order to come up with quantitative answers to those types of questions. What that looks like is we'll get groups of 10 to 20 players at a time, set them all up so that they're playing simultaneously and just let them play through the game. Depending on exactly the questions you have and how granular you want the answers to be, we might do that multiple times. You might end up with 50 or 100 people playing through the game. And while they're playing, we'll be measuring things. We'll be measuring how long do they spend on a level, how many times do they fail, We'll ask them to rate each level and we'll look at the ratings for each level. And then we're looking to see if those measures match what the game developers expect. Are there bits where people are dying too often or getting stuck for too long? Are there bits where all the players say this level is terrible and I hate it? And then by looking at that quantitative data and understanding why it happened, we'll be able to work with the game team to help resolve those issues. In games, that's a little bit different to how it works outside of games, because one of the challenges, I guess, for games is how important secrecy is. Because they have these huge marketing budgets where, for example, Destiny, I think they spent more on marketing the game than they did on actually developing the game. Game teams are very secretive and very in control of what they want people to see and what they want to be out in public so that it can match their marketing plan. So unlike other websites and other apps, we have to be very careful to be very secretive. That means that some methods that you might use outside of games, such as sending it to people's homes and letting them use it at home and then um, getting them to report back later just isn't available for games because we don't want to send people early copies of the games so that they can take home because it will end up in the internet in about five minutes later. (laughs) Because of that, we have to often run these types of studies in person. So teams like PlayStation or Microsoft or Activision have big user research labs where they can bring in 50 members of the public and have them all play at the same time so that we can do those type of quant questions while uh, keeping an eye on who can see the game and making sure it doesn't get leaked. 
yeah, I'm guessing there's it, it's heavily NDA'd. Is it the all the user research groups as well? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, secrecy is very important, and <laughs> it's also important for the trust with the game teams because they they want to be able to trust that if they put something into playtest, it won't end up on Reddit. Yeah, <laughs> and so we need to make sure that happened as well. You mentioned something there about tutorials, and uh, there was a bit I really liked in your introduction where you said that sometimes games developers assume that players read tutorials when no one has read a tutorial without spamming the skip button since 1978. <laughs> um, that that kind of struck with me because I was just thinking about the importance of this kind of research and the study that goes involved with, with the different groups that you talked about because I can't remember the last game that came with a manual. I suppose nowadays it's more important than ever that games are self-explanatory easy to work out the controls easy to work out the crafting or not easy is the right word but accessible for players would you agree that it's become more important because of the you know the lack of manuals now yeah exactly and i think game designers have got much better at this so because we know that people aren't going to read the manual uh whereas in the olden days it might have been okay to explain all the controls in the manual we know that's not no longer possible and then there was a time when game designers thought okay we don't have manuals anymore, but we can put this all in a tutorial at the beginning of the game and explain it all. Again, I think as games have developed, we realise that that isn't great either. People aren't reading tutorials at the right uh, at the beginning of the game, and instead we need to be really clever with presenting the right information to players uh, at the right time, so just before they need it. And I guess one of those things that's become much more common in games is they will, uh, the game will teach you a mechanic, it will force you to use it a few times in a row, the game will wait 10 or 20 minutes while you're doing some other actions in the game and then it brings back that same mechanic to show you, uh, to remind you, oh, look, this ability exists and you can do it like this. And so we've become much cleverer at tutorialising things so they don't feel like you're reading a manual or being told a whole bunch of instructions. It just feels like the game is intuitive and natural. I love a good manual, though. I'm, I miss the days when you got a manual in there and you, you got some kind of map in there. Like I remember the old GTA titles you used to get like a map of like Vice City or San Andreas or something. Do you know what I mean? I miss those days. I agree. It was always the best thing on the way back from the shop where you bought the game to be yeah. sat in the back of the car looking at the <laughs> manual. And that sense of anticipation that you know you're going to go home and get to experience this it was what part of the experience. Yeah, definitely. And while we're on to the subject of what's changed with games, um, and I, I just realised I made myself sound really old then by saying about the good old <laughs> days and stuff. But something else that's changed with games, I suppose, particularly in your line of work, is that um, in previous generations of games, you would have one game total release and then that was it and then for example halo you'd have halo one that's released you do some re user research groups and then it's done and then you'd wait till halo two and then you do another couple of groups of research and then do halo three example but nowadays you've got games like fortnite call of duty warzone uh no man's sky for example which i know you're involved in as well where mm -hmm. the game's continually developing rather than a yearly cycle it's a continuation and it, it's always evolving so is that something where nowadays user research is used as an ongoing thing for game development companies yeah exactly that and it's opened up a whole bunch of new opportunities for games user research and new problems as well i'm guessing <laughs> exactly new problems as i mentioned that problem about secrecy was really difficult for games user researchers because we don't want people to see the game we don't uh there are limited ways in which we can share it with people or plan our studies when it moves on to things like downloadable content or expansion packs and the game has been released 
we're able to do more things that look at real player data in uh, from the real experience of playing the game. Things like analytics, where you can track across millions of players all of their behavior and draw some conclusions about what people are doing. And because of that, there are just a whole bunch of new uh, research questions that researchers can answer with that kind of follow-up content and a lot more for a, a user researcher to learn, which probably makes it more difficult as well for user researchers. I wanted to bring up as well um, a point you made about the difference between user researchers and quality assurance. So um, quality assurance is something that uh, I think we've talked about in a previous episode um, with uh, Darren, the lead game designer at uh, um, Pixel Toys. But it's really interesting that in terms of quality assurance in regard and versus user research, would quality assurance come in at an earlier point to user research or would it be the other way around, if you see what I mean? So would, would user researchers play or do studies for games that are nearly made or would it be... Um, the other way around where they they play certain um, levels for example where nothing else is made because I'm interested to see where that changes. Yeah that's a great point. Uh, I imagine if you ask both QA people and user researchers they both like to be involved all the way through but often that isn't the case and that's the best best case scenario. I think a lot of the value of QA is later in development so when the game is almost finished, they can go through and remove all of the bugs in the game to make sure that players are experiencing the game in the way in which we hope they are. On the other hand, user researchers often have the biggest impact early in development. When the designers are thinking about those core mechanics, the things that you do in the game, we can have a huge impact on making sure that uh, those are fun and intuitive and that players understand how to do them. And so you can have the greatest impact as a user researcher right at the beginning of development when that core features are being fleshed out. However, as I mentioned, that is the best case and often it's much too late when user researchers are called in. It's nearly at the end and then you can find these fundamental problems but not be in a position to fix them, which is always uh, frustrating, I would say. Yeah, and I think one of the, um, I don't know if you agree with this, I don't know how much you want to talk about it because I don't think it was a game you're involved with, but um, something that comes to mind straight away is Cyberpunk 2077, um, having played it a lot over the past couple of months. Um, it, it seems like maybe the user research was made, waited till the last second or maybe even the acute quality assurance as well because of some of the issues that the game's got with it. Um, I suppose from it's really interesting you said about how they come too late because from a game game developer point of view and the development of a game, I'm guessing that the creative people involved in it, they've got this kind of tunnel vision all the way through of this is what the game is, this is what the game is. And then if you don't catch it early on where mm -hmm. you have to say, actually, the game that you think is being made isn't actually the game that is being made. If you catch that early on, it can save a lot of issues down the line later on where you, you go back to them and say, hang on, there's these issues. And then it might be too late to actually change the things that need to be changed. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And it's unfortunate that Cyberpunk 2077, uh, 20, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, 2077, um, because it does feel like all those activities that we think are really important, like QA and user research, perhaps weren't given enough time to be able to do their job properly. 
Um, because of that, I imagine that the QA team worked very hard and were probably flagging all of these problems. They are aware of every bug that existed. But because the crunch and the fact that development had been uh, so stretched, there just wasn't time for the rest of the team to fix those issues. So even though they knew they existed, they weren't able to fix them. I think that's one of the hard things about game development is it's a very rigid uh, project development time and often they have their launch date set years in advance, which means that it leads to uh, lots of rush development, uh, difficulty reacting to things as they as they pop up and being able to give enough time to fix problems as they arise. And it is quite a difficult industry to work in from that side. One of the other themes that uh, the book talks about is what are some of the problems with working in the games industry? And I think that it, uh, the experience of Cyberpunk 2077 is representative of some of them. So uh, short development timeframes leads to people having to work very long hours, uh, stay in the office, work on weekends, and is difficult to balance with having a, a personal life as well, which uh, is a problem for the industry. Yeah, I wanted to talk about as well um, one of the games you were involved in, um, No Man's Sky, which is one of my favourite games, and it's I play it all the time because it's just such an amazing, amazing game. But unfortunately, when when it first came out, um, it was on PlayStation. I'm an Xbox um, player, mm. so I had to wait a few years for it to move over to <laughs> Xbox. So I didn't get to play the early versions. But No Man's Sky is another example of a game where. Uh, a lot of the trailers and a lot of marketing suggested that it was going to be a type of game when actually when it was re- released, there was a lot of issues because some of the promises maybe that were made early on, it wasn't exactly the game that players actually got. But if you look mm-hmm. at the development of the game over time and what it is now, I suppose for games like Cyberpunk and No Man's Sky, it's not as it's not as bad or it's not as a big deal, I suppose, to... You can look at it from their point of view, can't you, as okay, we don't have to do that much now because we can always change it afterwards. We can always update it in the next update or, so, or whatever. Is, do you think that that also means that um, games developers maybe leave that user research to the end because they feel like they can, they can always do it for the next update, for example? Yeah, I don't know if I would uh, agree that it's a, they're making a conscious decision to leave it till later. I think it's often just a project management problem where they've run out of time and have to cut some things. Yeah. And because it's off, user research isn't often seen as a core part of the game development process, it's often just not front of mind when people are thinking about, okay, what do we absolutely need to do to get this game out, out of the door? What is really impressive, though, is with teams like No Man's Sky and the Cyberpunk team is that they haven't just released it and left it that commitment to talking to their players understanding what the experience is and then iterating and making it better is a really nice thing and it's nice that it's technically possible these days because i guess in the olden days that that wouldn't have been possible yeah and no you go no sorry steve um uh, one point i was going to make was that um you talk in your book about the fact that sometimes with these massive games, companies buy marketing space well in advance. So when you look at it, sometimes you feel like, you know, they have no choice but to release it because of those those constraints. So they, they have to they have to get it to a certain level to be able to release it and then make that commitment to improve it even further. So I suppose looking at it that way, 
I mean, you could, I'm guessing most games development companies um, would want years and years and years to make a game, but mm. sometimes that's not possible because of other constraints. So I suppose it is better that way than releasing a game that will never be finished. Yeah, one of the problems I think games has is it's very difficult to anticipate in advance how long it's going to take to make a game. Unlike apps and websites, which are more predictable and also easier to release an early version and then iterate on until you've got what you wanted. Because games have a big bang launch where they've got a release date and this it's on a disc on that day. And also just because that development uh, process can often take four or five years, it makes it very difficult to project manage and plan the development, which means that teams often realise too late that they're running out of time or what they hoped to achieve won't be ready on launch and does lead them to have to make these kind of decisions about either delaying launch, which can often be extremely expensive, or releasing a product and then uh, iterating on it and fixing it after. Yeah, I mean, I can't even think. I mean, you mentioned um, in in your book um, about um, quality assurance in Grand Theft Auto, for example, where there'd be it's some it'd be someone's job to go through the entire map and look for buildings where the camera goes through a solid wall, um, just literally running into every wall to see. I mean, if you can imagine how big a Grand Theft Auto mm. title is, like Grand Theft Auto Five, for example, how big that map is. Um, I mean, that that would take weeks and weeks and weeks, even if there's teams on it. So it's it's hard, isn't it, to put a date on, you know, when it will be 100% ready? Exactly. The the work that people in QA do to look for bugs is huge. And they have to restart all the time because even if you start playing through the game and looking for bugs, as soon as the team make a change or fix a problem or change uh, the art for the door, as you mentioned earlier, you then have to go back and recheck all those things you've checked before to make sure that hasn't had a knock-on effect somewhere else. And so it's just a, a non-stop job for QA teams to help uh, make sure that games are free of bugs. So, Steve, just tell me a bit more about user research then and how fun it is to be involved in the role and some of the positives that you'll get from, from being a user researcher. Yes. So obviously being a user researcher is fantastic because you spend a lot of time with players, understanding their real experience, and players are very excited to be there. Uh, one of the nice things about the industry is that day, uh, obviously your day-to-day -day job is bringing in players, watching them play and seeing if they understand the game. That's a normal day for you. For those players, it's the most exciting thing they've done this month or this year to come and play an unreleased game. And so there's that enthusiasm of being in the room with someone who's really excited is one of the positives. I guess there's some other nice things about working in games and industry as well. Um, there's the fact it's an entertainment medium and people enjoy it. And it's a positive thing in the world. It's really nice because, yeah, it's nice to work on a thing that people are excited about. It also gives you access and the chance to work on groundbreaking technology and things that aren't part of everyday life so far. So while I was at PlayStation, uh, we worked on the virtual reality headset. It was before virtual reality games headsets had been widely released. And so being on the cutting edge of technology both throws up some really interesting research questions as a researcher, such as how do players, uh, how can we make players interact with virtual reality? How do we make sure they understand how to pick things up or how to move in it? But it's also just exciting to see new tech and work on new technology. I guess another thing I, I personally liked is you, at the end of it, you get a game and your name's in the credits on it and you can think about 
okay, this game will exist forever and it will always have my name on the end of it. And you can feel an amount of pride on the things that you're making, uh, which is another really nice positive about working in games. Yeah, I mean, just to think about, obviously in the user research role, we talked about before that the main role is to make the game better. That's one of the main specifications for the role and one of the mm-hmm. main duties. So if you've, if a game comes out and you've made that game better, if you know that that game would have been worse without you helping in, in terms of the development, that must be an incredible feeling once you see that game come out. Yeah, it's nice because games have reviews and you can go and read some critical opinions about your games. It's nice when you can see your own work has been recognised by reviewers or had led to a good review score. It really gives you some pride in what you're doing to help make games better. And gaming is a passion, isn't it, as well? And there's not many people who get to who get to do their passion as a job. And when you talk about when you talk about you know, I'm guessing when you talk to people about working in the games industry, and it's the same with myself. When I talk to people that I've just met or you know, not anymore because obviously we're in a pandemic. But when I do get the Mm. chance to tell people I'm an esports and gaming journalist, they go, oh, that's so cool as a job because you're involved in games. Is it similar to you when you explain what you've done at PlayStation and things? Do people go, oh, that's so cool that you've managed to do that? Yeah, it's always a nice conversation starter because everyone has experiences with games. They Even if they don't play them now, they remember them from growing up and will think back to, oh, I used to play Mario or I used to play Sonic. And everyone has fond memories of playing the games. So it's really nice to have it as an opener and to make connections with people. Uh, That's a a real positive with the industry. And just let's just talk about, because I did mention the pandemic then. Obviously, it's been such a difficult um, year for everyone. Um, 18 months, I suppose. Um, No, it's been a year, hasn't it? Um, It's been a difficult 12 months for everyone in terms of having Mm -hmm. to spend more time at home and um, what have, have, in terms of the gaming, it's kind of stepped up, hasn't it? There's been more people playing games than ever before. Esports has got more popular than ever before because it was able to people were able to play remotely when traditional sports weren't able to. Um, what kind of impact do you think gaming's had in the last twelve months? Yeah, I, one of the nice things about gaming, especially online gaming, is that it is a social thing. You, although obviously playing games by yourself is great, you can have some great narrative single player experiences. Because it is also a way of connecting with other people, whether it is in the olden days being in the same room and playing Mario Kart with your friends, or uh, online these days, things like Fortnite or playing esports, it is a way of keeping friendship groups, talking to other people, and does give you something else to, to focus on to help continue to be social during the pandemic. Yeah, like you said, when you talk about when you play like single player games, it, it's just a nice escape, isn't it, for people? It's like a, you can have, there's some games like No Man's Sky, for example, where there's, there's such calm environments you can go to. Some are a bit more uh, fiery and cold and whatever, but overall, it's such a nice experience having that kind of escape from from the daily life and what's going on. And um, it, it's just that escape for people. It's something good to have, isn't it, in their lives? Yes, although I'm currently still playing through The Last of Us, uh, the second one, and it's an experience of going through a post-apocalyptic world after a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it feels a bit too close to home, but uh, it's at least it's different. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, 
me personally, um, I've been able to reconnect with friends that I haven't spoken to for a while, playing Warzone and playing Fortnite and FIFA and things. And I've met new people that I wouldn't have normally played online. And I mean, for for anyone who's struggling with that lack of social contact, I think playing games and getting involved in, in different parties and there's all sorts of groups you can get involved in within gaming where people get together and play games in different leagues and stuff. I definitely recommend doing that. And if, if you know that you've got friends who you haven't reconnected with for, for years, um, just invite them to a game of FIFA or invite them to a game of Warzone or something and you can reconnect that way. And it's um it's, it's easier rather than just calling people out of the blue, I suppose. It's easier just to jump on a game and have a bit of fun with them at the same time. Yeah, it's a really nice icebreaker, isn't it? I think that's a great suggestion. Definitely, definitely. Let's get on to some of the myths about working in games, some of the misconceptions that you talk about in your book, because as an esports journalist and speaking to people involved in esports, there's also a lot of misconceptions around esports and gaming in general. And as I'm sure you're aware as well, being involved mm. in the industry and maybe it's because people don't understand or, um, you know, I don't know, just people not involved in it. Um Mm-hmm. But let's talk about some of the myths then um, about working in games because, like you said in your first point, it's not just sitting around playing games all day. There's there's more to it, isn't there, than that? Yeah, unfortunately, as a game user researcher, although you do play the games enough to understand them and to understand the designer's vision, as we talked about, um, the actual game isn't, sorry, the job isn't for you to play the game. It's to watch other people playing the game which can be fun. We had some really fun moments on games like SingStar or other party games I worked on where it's groups of friends playing a fun game together and that's a nice environment to be in. But other times it's just watching people play that same game that you've watched 100 people play before. And so it's not non-stop fun in the way that people might imagine. I guess another myth as well that people think about when they think about uh, working in games it's everyone imagined those big games. They imagine Call of Duty or FIFA or Fortnite. And although they definitely have user researchers and user researchers work on those games, there's millions of other games that exist out there. Uh, things are released on Steam every day, which also benefit from user research support, but aren't those big titles that everyone thinks about every day. On my own experience, uh, I was very lucky when I was working at PlayStation that we got to work with lots of different game teams of lots of different sizes. Often it was the small games, the ones made by teams of three or four, which I found the most interesting ones to work on. It's because it's such a small group and every member of that group uh, had a lot of responsibility and ability to make changes based on what they saw in your user research sessions that uh, you could build up a really strong relationship with their team. And yeah, they just became some of the most fun ones to work on rather than those big games that everyone thinks of like FIFA. Yeah, and one of the other points you made was it, it's not like a walk in the park, is it? It's not just sitting playing games and just oh, I'm just going to play this game for a few hours today, and then I'm going to clock off. It's not. It's not like that, is it? There's a lot of hard work that goes in behind the scenes with with games development. Yeah, one of the other things I guess the game industry unique to the game industry is it has a very vocal fan base. So every game had lots of people online who care a lot about the game, which is fantastic and talk about it a lot, which, again, is great, but you don't get that if you're working on apps or websites. Uh, One of the downsides, I guess, of that is often those fans can underestimate how hard the people working on the game have been working, or they might think, oh, the fix this is so simple. I don't know why they didn't just 
uh, increase the power of the rocket launcher. That would have been the obvious fix without understanding that all it's a very complex system in games and everything is very interdependent on each other. And so the fixes aren't often as simple as people imagine them to be. Uh, so yeah, both pluses and minuses that it's an industry with such a, a vocal fan base. Yeah, obviously being, I, I cover FIFA a lot as part of my role and you see a lot of those comments with with any FIFA updates about how, oh, if they just change this little thing, then it might be better or if they just change this. But like you mm. said, if, if they change something, it might have a knockoff effect on something else that they don't intend and then they've got to change that and then that might have a knock-on effect. So you need, a lot of work needs to be put in to understand every single little change, doesn't it? Yeah, it's very complex and very interdependent. So really hard to to make a simple change without ruining everything else. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, let's talk about something else. It might be it might be easy from you know from us sitting here talking about games, and obviously we're both a real real fan of games and the gaming industry. Um, but some people listening might might not be or might not play games regularly, but. It'd be easy for us to say, oh, yeah, it's really fun to work in games because, you know, it's something we're passionate about. But do you just want to answer that question a bit more about why it's so fun to work in the games industry? Because I know you talked about that in your book as well. Yeah, I guess it is an industry where people care about it a lot. Uh, We talked about the fans already, so it's really nice that there's a whole bunch of people who are really excited about what you're working on. That's really nice enthusiasm to have. Um, Also, everyone who works in games is there because they care about games. The, the game industry does have some downsides. I also talk about some of the downsides in the book. Uh, one of them is that uh, uh, pay in games isn't as much as working in other industries. So, for example, if you're a software developer working on an app, you'll probably make more than a software developer working on a game. However, that means that everyone who is working in games is there because they really care about games, they're really excited about games, and they want to be there. Uh, it's really exciting to have an environment of people who do care about the project, that they have fans who also care about the project and you get to share your work with the world and have everyone very excited about it, which is a lovely place to work. And you talk in your book as well about how many how many games are being made and that means there's a lot of jobs out there, but there's also a lot of people doing those jobs, isn't there? So there's a lot of competition out there for, for people who want to be involved in um, games development and as a user researcher as well. I mean, it's a bit of a general question, so mm-hmm. feel free to shoot me down, but... Um, is it hard to get a job in games at the moment? Because I see a lot of there's a lot of vacancies online. There's a lot of companies recruiting and things. But do you think it's a the competitive? It's a very competitive industry in terms of recruitment. I think there are some factors that make it difficult to get a job, especially in user research, the part of games that I know most about, uh, because it isn't. We mentioned earlier it's not always considered a core part of the development process, and it's often an afterthought. What that means is that some smaller companies don't have a user research team or only have a single user researcher, so there's not a huge amount of jobs out there. Uh, games is also very uh, geographically dependent. So there are lots of there is some places around the world that have a lot of game studios, places like San Francisco, uh, in Canada or in London. But if you don't live in those areas, you are going to have to move to get a job, which isn't always possible for people. It can be very difficult to uproot your life and move to another part of the country or another part of the world. I guess some other things that make it hard are, we talked about crunch earlier, the fact that there can be very long hours, you can work weekends. That just isn't compatible with some people's lives. If you have childcare responsibilities or you have a a family, you might not be able to spend all day in the office for weeks on end. 
And because of that, you might have to make some commitment, uh, some, yeah, some commitments that you wouldn't be happy making. And that can make it very hard to get that job in games. It is very competitive as well as a field, as you mentioned. And so especially as a games user researcher, especially at a junior level where you have the most competition, you have to do a lot of hard work to stand out from the rest of the people, which is one of the themes of the book where I talk about here's the things you can do to stand out from everyone else applying for games jobs. Yeah, he, he talks about having to move and there seems to be those kind of hubs, doesn't there, in different countries mm. where the game, the developers like lemon to spa that is quite close to me that seems to become like a hub for for games developers and um it's it's good to see that more and more of those are sprouting up um and obviously with you know obviously in a global pandemic so I'm, I'm guessing a lot of this stuff is done from home as well at this point um i don't know if you've experienced that yeah uh, i think that's true i think uh, because of the pandemic remote working has been considered by a lot of companies who hadn't thought about it before and that's a really positive change because that can make it easier for people to balance doing their job with having a real life outside of work by being able to live where they want in the world or already being at home if they do have a childcare commitment or other things they need to do at home. So, yeah, that's a positive change, in my opinion. So, obviously, your book is called How to Be a Games User Researcher. Um, what would you say to someone who who wants to become one? What would you say in, in terms of the positives and negatives? And overall, would you recommend becoming a games user researcher? Yeah, I think it's one of the most interesting jobs in games. You get a lot of variety in it. You spend a lot of time working with play, real players, so people who play the game, and watching them and understanding what's going on in their heads. If that sounds like an interesting challenge to you, I think it is a career for you because. Yeah, it's great to spend so much time with players and spend so much time with the people who make the games and understand what is the experience the game is meant to be giving and if it really is giving that. It's a really interesting question. So it is a, a career I'd recommend to people who who think that is interesting. I guess we've all I, I've talked about it perhaps too much, the downsides of working in games. Because of those commitments you have to make with games about it's it can have an impact on your personal life. You make less money than you would if you did the same job outside of games. It, you would have to balance what are the priorities in your life before I can recommend whether this is exactly the career for you. But I hope in the game we give a fair, sorry, in the book, we give a fair overview of what the job really would be like and what you can do to practice those skills if you did want to do the job to allow people to make an informed decision about this. Yeah, and I think I'd put that out, I'd, I'd kind of counter your point a bit to say that, um, not counter it, but maybe add to it a little bit more, that there's a lot of people out there who are doing jobs that they don't necessarily like. So, you know, a positive side to the games industry, that if you are passionate about games and you want to be involved in the development of them, uh, instead of working in a job that you don't like and doing overtime in a job that you hate, maybe you'd prefer to do that in, in an industry that you really enjoy and that you you might enjoy working those extra hours. That might be something that you enjoy doing. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, what's really nice about games is you can feel proud about the thing you've made at the end. It's really exciting when you see your name in the credits and knowing that real people are going to go and play this and experience it and love it. It's really nice to have be able to work in an industry where you do have those nice moments. So that's fantastic. And why, why write a book, um, Steve, just from your personal point of view? What was it that made you want to write a book about about this subject? Yeah, so 
As I think I mentioned right at the start, I've been running a mentoring scheme for the last five years, which helps people who are interested in whether this is the career for them, practice the skills they need to practice and learn what the job is like and make connections so that they can uh, have a chance of getting this as a job for real. Throughout those years, I've noticed that there are some themes in the types of things that people want to know about working in games and some themes in the things that our mentors are telling them. So the activities we give them to do to practice. And I thought at least it saves everyone's time if we write all these up and uh, create it as a resource so that people can practice the skills, learn about the job and might be, uh, be interested in doing it for a full time job. Whereas before, it was very difficult to learn what the job is really like and decide if this is for you. So as well as the book to help with this, there are some other things that we're doing as well. Um, on the book's website, there's a mailing list and we're going to be having things like interviews and activities to help people apply the skills they've read about to help make sure that people who want to join the games industry as a games user researcher have this as an avenue to help them do it. So your book, How to Be a Games User Researcher, is out now at um, all good bookstores, I suppose, and other places like Amazon, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and further resources to help you start your career in games user research are also available on this book's website, which is www.gamesuserresearch.com. Um, Steve, it's been it's been a pleasure chatting to you, and I feel like I've learned so much again from from your book and what you've what you've talked about. And I hope people listen have as well because. Like I said right at the start, when you play a game, you're enjoying that game and um, you're, you're experiencing that game for what it is. But sometimes it's very hard to overlook the amount of work that's gone into that. And I think user research seems like uh, a massive part and a lot of work that's gone into it. So it's good to shine a light on, on this. And um, thanks for coming on and explaining it so succinctly as well. That's all right. Thank you for having me, Nathan. It's been lovely. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening to Level Up, the esports and gaming show. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a rating and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at Level Up Pod, where you'll find all of our previous episodes and information about how to subscribe. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Level Up.